This is Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 18th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. Mr. Trudeau, you are a phony and you are a fraud and you do not deserve to govern this country. Do we go back to the failed policies of the Harper years and double down on Doug Ford with Andrew Scheer? And that's what we get from Mr. Trudeau. Lots of pretty words, but no action. Canadians have one more weekend to decide on their next Prime Minister. Britain, on form, has about another hundred billion years of discussing Brexit ahead of it, and Finland has a strange preoccupation with buckets. All that, plus a leaf through the new edition of Monocle magazine. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. We will start with Brexit, for which it has been quite the week, even by the standards of Brexit, a process which now feels like it commenced shortly after the earth cooled and will continue until the sun dies. This week, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson returned from Brussels with an aura of boisterous triumph and what he declared was an exciting new withdrawal deal with the EU. We will probably discover tomorrow whether or not the British Parliament, in which Johnson tossed away his majority some weeks, back believes this is really much more than Theresa May's withdrawal agreement with a few paragraphs switched around, a shabby journalist's trick with which Johnson will be familiar, having once been a shabby journalist. I'm joined now by Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck and Monocle's affairs editor Chris Chermak. Um, Andrew, first of all, as far as it's possible to tell, um, is Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement really that much new? Well... It isn't, it isn't. I guess the key issue has been this question about Northern Ireland and this dreaded word that we've lived with for the last year or so, the backstop, uh, which no one really kind of outside politics ever really got their head around. And this was just the notion for the people who are unionists, who have union in their title as a political party, they didn't want any deal that in any way removed Northern Ireland by one inch from the political debate and the the cultural connections with uh, the rest of the UK. Although they've always been pretty relaxed on that front where gay marriage and abortion were concerned. uh, Exactly. (laughs) And I think, uh, let's not go down this rabbit hole, but the the other strange thing is, actually, I would imagine there are many British people, especially younger British people who come after the period of the IRA, who don't really care that much about Northern Ireland in a way and aren't as passionate about keeping that part of the union together, where, whereas Scotland and Wales might excite uh, emotions because they're physically connected to England. I dare say that there are there are some that don't care that much. And here's like one of the, the weirdest things. So they've come up with a, 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 a kind of solution that keeps Northern Ireland uh, with one foot in the EU, but you know attached to the rest of the UK, but with this notion that they can get a vote in four years' time to decide whether they change the arrangements, all a little bit complicated. But the strange thing is that I don't understand why under Theresa May, all these kind of Spartans, the, 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 the hardcore people who are desperate to get out of the European Union, said, whatever happens, we will not agree to a deal unless the DUP, which is the, 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 the key party that's been backing the Tories, keeping them in power, the, the, this union party, unless they say that this is okay. And they've been saying that 
all up until the last four or five days. Boris Johnson himself appeared at the Democratic Unionist Party's conference and said there would never be a border down the Irish Sea a matter of weeks ago. Exactly. And now there is going to be a border down the Irish Sea. Plus, the DUP are absolutely furious about this deal. They do believe it in some way gives them a different status to the rest of the UK. But now, what's interesting is when you read the Tory press, who were like so on their sides like three weeks ago, now everyone was saying, you've just got to go, get on with it. You've got to swallow your pride. You've got to vote for this. And they're not going to vote for it. But that is the strange thing is like the the belief system that surrounds Boris Johnson is a little bit like Trump supporters. They 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 change their mood with the day. So the Tory press who they don't they don't know kind of what line to follow. They, as I say, they would have been they would have been so opposed to this deal if Theresa May had come back with it. But because it's Boris, they've somehow kind of swung behind it. Chris, on that thought, um, and Andrew's quite right, there is a response to this bill that was noticeably uh, absent from Theresa May's version of the same thing in in many respects. Um, As a certainly, I I think I've lived here long enough not really to count as an outsider anymore, but as a still relative outsider to Britain, how weird do you find the personality cult of Boris Johnson? Uh, Well, as Andrew said, I think uh, there are some similarities to Donald Trump, uh, which I'm more familiar with as a part American. So... um, (laughs) It's it's surprising and not surprising in the day and age that we live in. I think uh, Andrew's right that there is a certain... I, th- I think there's two things, I would say. One is there is a personality, perhaps, uh, following of, uh, of Boris Johnson. Um, but I think it also goes to the fact that he is the first prime minister who supported Brexit right from the beginning. And so there's this sense, I think, also among Tory skeptics that, okay, this deal maybe is not that different from what Theresa May brokered before, but it is a deal that was now brokered by somebody who was on their side, as opposed to Theresa May, who maybe was never seen as somebody on their side to begin with because she had voted Remain. Um, The question to which Boris Johnson is sincerely on the Brexiters' side remains, I think, an open one. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Because as we've talked about, the question is, is this deal really that different from what it was before? And so um, the big question for me, therefore, will be, uh, and we might get to this in our talk, but uh, what will happen afterwards? Because if there is a general election, that's also where there's now a key split between Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, for example, who doesn't support this. So it'll be tough for conservatives and conservative voters to decide, is the po- is the sort of personality politics of Boris Johnson strong enough to support him? Or is the personality politics of Nigel Farage strong enough to support him and his stance on this? Uh, Chris, I think that's a great point because, again, this is, this is how fast British politics are moving. You know, just a few weeks ago, the, the Brexit party, Nigel Farage's you know, new nascent party, it was getting 25-26% of mm. the potential vote in any election. And he seems back to being a diminished and almost forgotten figure today. He's like, you know, squealing in the corner saying, you know, I'd rather have uh, an extension than accept this deal. Aaron Banks, one of the big backers of the Brexit movement, he said, vote for it. Let's go with it. Jacob Rees-Mogg, again, one of the Spartans now within government has said, "Uh, it's a great deal. You can always trust Boris. You know, I I love it. Let's go for it. So, the way that the characters change their minds is is extraordinary. But I think for Nigel Farage, it just doesn't look a good day. He's, he's kind of 
He's he's sidelined by Boris in a, an extraordinary way in the last twenty four hours. Well, that that is something, I guess. I mean, from, from, <laughs> well, but, but from from Farage's <laughs> point of view, not that I am at all overwhelmed with sympathy for him, but if if Brexit in any shape or form actually happens, he's stuffed. He ha- he has absolutely no further claim on the public consciousness. He's going to have to think of some other way to keep the grift going. He's he's one of those people who he never wanted the win. He wanted the fight. He'll just be stuck with a radio show, Andrew. And you know, well, that's like that's that's kind of a that's kind of a, a miserable miserable purgatory to be ended up with as as your takeaway at the end of the day. No, I think he, I think he's he he's he's done for. He's going to be a you know, a personality who pops up on the radio and can shouts and shouts. But as Chris said, the interesting thing is post whatever happens. Say say, and we'll come to that if, if the miracle and it gets voted through. Then we go into this transition period, which already is set to run to December 2020. Mm. And most people with a brain cell think that that's not long enough to negotiate a, a deal with the EU. And that if it goes like Canada Plus or any of the other key uh, trading relationships that have been set up recently, it could be plus one more year or even two more years. So we're talking like we're holding pen in another way. And then again, coming back to one of these Spartans like Aaron Banks, he's like, fine, let's get this bit through. And then we can kind of screw them over over the next over the next few months and years. So it's not that this is like peace is going to break out after Saturday, even if it if, if it gets pushed through. It just begins another round of argy bargy and, and complicated uh, uh, contemplation about what our future relationship should be. Uh, Chris, if this deal does go through this weekend, and that is a very very big if, and we don't have time to the possible relief of our listeners to get into all the possible permutations, but one of one of the very great oddnesses that will then rear up is watching the rest of the United Kingdom, watching how these special arrangements work for Northern Ireland, which will stay within the customs union. So if it works for Northern Ireland, aren't we then going to see a situation of Scotland saying, well, OK, we'll have some of that. And could that not be followed then logically by Wales saying, yeah, that looks all right to us. And even an extremist London then saying, well, can we not have something of the sort? Well, I'd, also, I'd almost step back one place further because I think one of the interesting things was this This was a deal that was obviously, or not obviously, but this was something that Theresa May had also considered and the, that the EU had proposed a special arrangement for Northern Ireland. It was then ditched because Theresa May said, I'm not going to split Northern Ireland off from the rest. And one interesting element of that was also that other EU countries at the time were skeptical of this because they felt this would give Northern Ireland special access that they wouldn't have and it would create a sort of special business haven, if you will, that other EU countries also would not have or EU regions would not have. And so absolutely, I think you're right that Scotland already has said, and that's part of the reason they're voting against this deal at the moment, uh, the Scottish uh, party in in, uh, in London, um, because they feel that they're getting shafted by this deal, essentially, because it does give Northern Ireland a special arrangement that they will not have. Both Northern Ireland and Scotland are very similar on this uh, simply because of the fact that they both also are more pro-EU. They voted for uh, Remain in the referendum. So yes, Scotland would love to have the kind of deal that Northern Ireland has. And you could imagine that if this deal actually gets through, that might be the next step that Scotland takes to say, okay, well, if you're going to give this to Northern Ireland... We want to have some kind of closer arrangement with the EU as well. So final very quick thought on this subject, Andrew. Should we all be trying to nail down office space in Belfast and avoiding the rush? 
I don't know. Let's wait and see what happens on Saturday. Um, my feeling is he has a reasonably good chance, even if the DUP kind of have run away from him, because there are so many Labour MPs who know that there is going to be an election one way or the other in in the coming weeks, and many of those sit in in constituencies who voted by a huge country mile to leave and they are nervous about keeping their jobs and uh, keeping their their nice perks so i think there's quite a rump of labor voter mp's who will vote for this deal and maybe kind of get Johnson what he wants. Andrew Tuck and Chris Chermack thank you both for the moment you are listening to Monocle's House View. And Andrew Tuck is staying with us for the next few minutes for a quick leaf through the new edition of Monocle magazine. It should be on a new stand near you now or now about. Um, is, is that a, a chunkier volume than usual? Uh, it, well, it, it, no, it is. It is hefty. Um, it's, it's got a special uh, survey about hosting. Not, <laughs> not hosting radio shows, I might add, but hosting people in your house and around a table, which you, you do uh, with a commensurate skill every single day. But there is a huge kind of survey about hosting. Plus, twice a year, we dip into the world of design. And there's a really chunky section from uh, Nolan Giles, our design editor, looking at homes, simple homes and good things to buy for them. What did we learn about hosting from the survey? Well, I'm very pleased to say that... Um, my, my own skills extend little further than just sending out for a few pizzas and telling everyone to bring a bottle. Well, I, I'm not sure that that isn't kind of mentioned here, actually. <laughs> um, Joshua Fenner, who is um, uh, our food and drink... Uh, I don't want to call him a guru, but... Uh, the, the, you the just man, have. Yeah, they call him a guru. He's, he's the man who kind of pulls all this stuff together. He's done it with, with great aplomb, and I think the idea of this is that... Um, Entertaining is good. Entertaining shouldn't be complicated. Uh, you should be able to take some shortcuts. You shouldn't be stuck in a kitchen making endless rounds of food and worrying about sources. This is a world of like pre-preparation, getting things done, having fun, laying a great table, playing good music. And all the people that we spoke to are kind of passionate about that. And there's also a really n nice kind of group of people in here who are doing kind of new things around hosting. So in Brooklyn, for example, ad hoc coming togethers of in interesting people who meet in different people's homes and bring food and cook together. And that's what we've tried to get over. This isn't a, the, the world of like polishing the, the silver, but rather about letting go a little bit and kind of having fun. Uh, and what is in the, in the front of the magazine? What have we been reporting on this month? Well, for one month only, it's like one of those um, special appearances at Vegas. I, I, I was, I was the kind of the. Uh, well, I'm a vegetarian, so I can't be the ham in the sandwich. But um, <laughs> Megan, who is a very good affairs editor, is um, off. She's just had a baby. Chris, who you just heard, has come to man that desk, run that little empire for the coming year. And so there was an odd month where I kind of picked up some stories that I think 
must be truthful that Megan had had already kind of lit the fire under and got them on page. So I can, for once, tell you what's at the front <laughs> of the book. So uh, with with nice timing, we went to Istanbul and we met the uh, the mayor of Istanbul, uh, which was this extraordinary story, which you, you I know you covered here, here on 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 the on the show that he was elected in March this year for the first time, where he triumphed with a margin of twenty five thousand votes. There was a recount. It fell to sixteen thousand. Then the government came in and said, "Look, you know this this isn't isn't correct." You know, uh, Erdogan, of course, was the former mayor of Istanbul. So they forced another election, and this time, of course, he he won with eight hundred thousand votes <laughs> and upset the apple cart. So this is him talking about what he wants Istanbul to be. And we did a nice little vox pop, which is, just shows you how divided the city still is, though, because many people see him as a, literally as a traitor because he has conversations with people who are Kurdish. He mm. reaches out to the LGBT community. He does lots of things which for people on the more religious side of politics don't like. But with what, all that's going on in Turkey this week, it's good to have a voice in here like this. It makes you realize... You know, there's a risk when we all look at the news is that you imagine that everyone's cohesive and believes whatever their president says. Well, especially in the case of Erdogan, who has very much attempted to make himself the personification of the state. And so when everybody abroad thinks of Turkey, they think of him. And that is a good reminder that there's a lot more going on in Turkey than just that. And, and a lot of people who are still you know, keen to be part of a European discussion and who who look west for their ideas and not east. Two other nice little stories. Um We've been for ages trying to get uh, journalists into um, Damascus and into Syria. And this month, we're there with a, a photographer who actually lives in the city um, and also a reporter that we sent in from uh, Jerusalem. But the interesting thing is, whatever you do there, you have effectively a minder. You have a government uh, person. As I did when I went there for Monocle a while back now, nine or ten years ago. Yeah, we, we sent you on a on a, a nice little road trip. A, a wacky road trip from Beirut to Damascus, which I would not want to attempt now. No, although, yeah, oddly, if you're Lebanese or Syrian living in Lebanon, you are entitled to get in a taxi and drive, drive that drive. You You see the cars going up to the border. But anyway, despite that, I was struck by how open many people were who who spoke to uh, our team and they paint a picture of a, a, a city that on the outside may look as though it's gone back to a kind of normality the the fighting that was in the suburbs of uh, Damascus mm. has, has long finished but what they actually say is every single aspect of life that you see there has been changed by the war and one of the key things is that the absence of young men so young men are either in the army dead or they're fled so in cafes where you used to go to a few years ago and everyone was a a, a guy who was the waiter it looks like there's been a you know, sexual revolution because everyone is now a young woman who serves you it, it, it's not that attitudes have changed it's just that those people have literally left the city in one way or the other but just as in other places where there is hell not far away there is a sense of we need to live for now so we end up in a in a techno nightclub at the end of it as well Andrew Tuck, thank you for joining us. That edition of Monocle is out now. In a moment, a look at Canada's imminent election and a contemplation of the peculiar hold that the bucket exerts upon the Finnish psyche. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned.
You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Canadians will vote on Monday in a general election. All things considered, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be relieved that it is taking place before Halloween provides him with fatal temptation on the costume front. A few months back, Trudeau's fancy dress preferences of his recent youth were not shaping as significant election issues. They have certainly done little for his image abroad, but have they made any difference to Canadian voters? And if they haven't, what has? I'm joined with more on this from our Toronto Bureau by Monocle's Thomas Lewis and right here in our studio by Monocle's Daniel Bache. Um, Thomas, we've already probably talked more than enough, certainly more than enough for Justin Trudeau's liking about the regrettable photos, but have they been a thing at all? Well, it's extraordinary, actually, Andrew, because I think it was maybe two weeks after the photos dropped, maybe a week and a half, McGill University in Montreal, uh, they published a study in which they had immediately, as those photos and video were published, tracked the activity and the chatter around them online. What they found, amazingly, was that all of that chatter pretty much died off within about three days. I think that there are a few reasons for that. I think Justin Trudeau's response to to it uh, was kind of a masterclass actually in how you deal with a political crisis. He apologised profusely. I think those apologies were pretty nuanced and appeared to many people to be very sincere. And he made those apologies over and over again. So it really took the steam out of the lines of attack, if you like, from the opposition parties who understandably, you know, were trying to get as much capital out of these photos as they possibly could. I think if you look at the opinion polls in the week since those photos came, the needle really hasn't budged at all. So we go into Monday's vote uh, really still at a kind of a deadlock between Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party and the Progressive Conservative Party on the right of the spectrum, uh, he- uh, excuse me, helmed by um, Andrew Scheer. Uh, so really it is on a knife edge, it s- still seems to me, as we go into Election Day on Monday. Uh, Daniel Bates, here in our studio, you of course do have a more direct investment in this election you get a vote in it. Um, and without tipping your hand, um, what have been the the issues that have shaped your decision? Well, as I pointed out today, I did have the option of voting for the Rhinoceros Party in Toronto Centre, where I used we, to live. But um, Many of us were in the office trying to encourage you to vote yes. for the Rhinoceros Party. I, I take it we, we didn't persuade you? Uh, well, I can't tip my hat as a journalist. Course, yeah, yeah, there was yeah. ten choices. I made one. Uh, <laughs> So nine choices, I should say. I think in general, the issues have boiled down to, at least from the leaders' perspectives and the party perspectives, uh, casting the net wide to this middle class. It's this mythical thing they all talk about all the time about saving Canadians money. And the cost of living has been the really big one that Mm. I've noticed quite a bit. It's all over the place. The leaders in the last couple of days have been spending a lot of their time in the suburbs of Toronto, where... uh, there are huge numbers of ridings. Obviously, it's like London where it's so populous that uh, there are just so many different ridings, so many different races to be run. Uh, So they've been looking a lot at especially that, the cost of living, putting money back into your pocket, that type of thing. Uh, The Conservatives uh, from their side, they uh, have been talking about how the Liberals can't be trusted and mostly because of the scandals involving Justin Trudeau. So they've spent a a lot of time talking about that while the Liberals quite typically say the Conservatives are, you know, just planning tax cuts and to put money into the pockets of their rich friends. So that's sort of the the main storylines that have gone along uh, so far. And the NDP, sort of uh, the third party, the New Democratic Party, their line has sort of been uh, to stay above the fray and say, listen, uh, there's another choice. So that's what it's boiled down to. 
Uh, Thomas, when Justin Trudeau was running in the previous election, he was, of course, well, not the entirely fresh-faced unknown quantity. He did come to the race with one of the most famous surnames in the country. But he is now a known quantity as his own man and as his own prime minister. What has he been trying to pitch as his big successes? Well, there are lots of them, to be totally honest. And I think his major battle has been this kind of maybe shapeless, slightly amorphous kind of sense of mistrust that has really developed around him for a lot of voters, a lot of younger voters who may well turn out to be crucial come election day, given that they were so important to his election win, uh, his landslide election win four years ago. You know, lots of them, when you talk to them, talk about an apparent breaking of a promise on overhauling the voting system here in Canada. Lots of people voted for him on that issue and he hasn't done it. Um, Other issues like the environment, the government has fairly controversially to many bought a big oil and gas pipeline project in the west of Canada. That hasn't sat very easily. But I think if you go through the sort of, you know, the checkbook, if you like, of what the Trudeau government has achieved, there are some really big sort of landmark things that uh, he has done. You know, he's legalized marijuana, which has been an issue here for, you know, decades in Canada, given that it is part of the fabric and has been for for, for some time. Um, so I think he's really battled to try and sort of get through the mist of this idea that actually he was elected in this huge wave of energy and this promise of change, but that many people feel as though he's actually represents kind of business as usual in terms of politics, you know, the dodgy backdoor dealings, those kind of things. Um, So we'll see. I think, you know, if he had opponents that were more charismatic and that had really more sort of captured the imagination more, which Andrew Scheer at the Conservatives, you know, Jagmeet Singh at the New Democrats on the left of the party is maybe chipping away at that now in this final week of the campaign. Uh, But I think if he'd had more charismatic opponents, maybe he'd be in more trouble than he is. We are seeing in the latest opinion polls, for example, that the Liberal Party is appears to be eking ahead a little bit in Ontario, for example, as Daniel mentioned, that is a really crucial province for any party that wants to be in government in Ottawa to win. So we'll see. Maybe maybe the horses are starting to pull away, but it really is very close, it seems, at the moment still. Daniel, what kind of tone uh, has this election been conducted in? And I guess what I'm asking is what kind of tone are Canadian elections generally conducted in, especially when measured against what occurs over your southern border, where especially in recent years, there has been this this strange, deranged, paranoid edge to the political discourse. Mm. Has, has any of that crept over the border? <laughs> Comparing to America, I think <laughs> Canada is quite lukewarm and, and quite civilised. No, I think it's been... Uh, pretty tame, actually. There, there has been a lot of talk about whether this campaign turned nasty and whether it has been really uh, down to the, the personal attacks between leaders and parties on leaders. But I've been hearing a lot recently about uh, past examples and people remind me, reminding of elections from the 90s and early in the 90s when it really was quite nasty. And I think it didn't really get to the level that I expected it to in this one. It's It's been really quite mild. And if, I mean, if you compare it to Fox News in the United States and the, the battles that rage on there, it's, it's nothing like that. It's quite civilized, as you might expect. As indeed we were. Daniel Bates here in London and Thomas Lewis in Toronto. Thank you both for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View.
This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's House View, the bucket. For most of us, the bucket is a workaday, unremarkable kind of utensil. When we think of the bucket at all, we think, yes, here is truly a receptacle with a handle, which is extremely useful for transporting quantities of liquid from one location to another. To cite an example from real life, I often use a bucket myself for carrying hot water from the kitchen to a part of the house where the floor needs mopping. For fins, however, the bucket has become something altogether more significant, something so significant significant in fact that a measurable proportion of the population are willing to stand in line for one. Well joining me now as he so often does when we need to ask someone what the deal is with Finland is Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Uh, Marcus your people and buckets. What What is going on here? Why are we talking about this? So the latest development is that yesterday, Finland's largest shopping centre cl- opened close to Helsinki's heart. And there were thousands and thousands of people doing the thing we've seen happen in Finland before, queuing for free buckets. So this is a phenomenon <laughs> that's been growing in Finland year by year. And I was doing a bit of research, trying to find reasons for that. And ha- I, Have you ever personally queued for no, a bucket, Marcus? I, I, I haven't, but I know some people who have, and I think they've done it in a joking fashion. But I was doing research, and supposedly this whole thing began in the 1990s when someone just thought to hand out free buckets, and you know, when you get free things, you always have some people queuing over there. But indeed, now we're talking about thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people doing that. I found one article where the journalist had gone to join the queue and had been discussing with people what they wanted and why they wanted buckets. And I think (laughs) my conclusion is that buckets quite nicely explain what the Finnish culture is all about. So obviously you get those individuals who say that it's quite nice to have a bucket when you're doing some household cleaning, for example. But everybody's got a bucket, Marcus. But, but... Remember, Finland is a country where many families own cottages and also saunas. And you need buckets in saunas often. You also well, may need that, an extra that, bucket that, that, that for true. your cottage that, when that, you go to the countryside. You, you make a fair point that your, your people may have bucket requirements, uh, you know, exceeding those of the rest of us. But even so, standing in a queue for a bucket, they are readily available items and they're not usually <laughs> expensive. But they are free. I don't know. I think... Even but, but, if they... What does a bucket I, even cost? I think one... I, th- I think it's in a Finnish psyche, you know. Let's remember, Finland was a really, really poor country after the Second World War, so I think it's something... But nobody had a bucket in have. Finland in the 1940s. <laughs> I don't know. What did they have before plastic buckets? But um, they might not have had much, Marcus. They would have had buckets. But but it's, 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 it's obviously... You have to remember that sometimes when you get a free bucket there may be a free voucher over there or something an extra goodie but i know i have that thing as well i i i actually have to admit that if someone offered me a free bucket i would take it i i would maybe queue for five minutes for a free bucket but i do realize that i do have this thing that so many finnish people have i find it very hard to throw things away i'm a hoarder i like having things okay so you never know when you need them if any of our listeners have a bucket going spare they can contact you via the email address in the front of the magazine you can just post them here one door says Midori House, London. Yeah, everybody, please. Uh, we've just made it. We just made you incredibly unpopular with the receptionists, Marcus. <laughs> we, if, if we come in on Monday and there's just like hundreds of buckets piled up in, in in the lobby. Just one more thing. Just one final thing. I think buckets may, in the future, this is my prediction, play a significant role when it comes to Finland's political future. Because I learned that in recent years, political candidates have realised to use the same trick. So when you have your stand where you are handing out your leaflets you get way more audience when you hand out free buckets. Uh, just a final very quick thought on this, Marcus. What do you personally look for in a bucket? I like simplicity. 
And red colour. I think for some reason a bucket is meant to be red when it's in my household. Uh, anybody listening with any spare red buckets, you know where to send them. Um, that was Marcus Hippie. Thank you very much for joining us. And that is all for today's show, probably mercifully. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus. I am not sure whether or not any buckets will be featured. You will need to tune in to find out. Monocle's House View returns on Monday. That's 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend. Thank you.